This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. They're such an angry lot, um, but uh, we're going to have a nice, calm show for you now. Um, we are going to talk about science for the next hour. I am joined in the studio by Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Speaking of feisty. <laughs> and just as well that we've got lots of elbow room in the studio this morning. We do, because you're in a bit of a feisty <laughs> mood, aren't <laughs> yep. Folks, uh, I've been sitting in the studio for the last half hour with Dr. Gianni, and, and a couple of times I've just had to settle her down and say, you know, we're going to be on the air soon, just come. Oh, down. you know, You'll Sunday's okay. a good time to rant and rave when you <laughs> 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 need to get a few things off your chest. <laughs> Which you have. Uh, but they're all done now, so we're going right. to talk science. We have got three uh, really cool guests that we'll be speaking to later in the show, but we're going to start off with some news. Um, first of all, a big... Uh, uh, cheerio to all the people in, in Paris and those who have family and friends over there. Um, I know a few who do have family and friends who are safe, which is good, but uh, hopefully that situation will calm down soon and, um, you know, it's awful, but uh, it will pass. So <laughs> focus on the good things. Dr. Diani, what do you got for us in terms of news? I have some space news. There, there are some amongst us who, you know, think I, you know, potentially avoid space news, that it's, you know, maybe not so interesting as... You know, biology, biology and things like that. But <laughs> no, I, I have a, an interesting piece. What, of, wasn't there? Uh, wasn't there a uh, request on uh, the radiothon that you had to do a piece of space th- news? There was, so this and you know, this is exactly months, 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 months later. later. But I'm good to my word. Yep. I'm going to talk about the New Horizons Space Pro, which, mm-hmm. of course, is the one that flew past Pluto earlier this year in July. And uh, so there's been a constant stream of uh, news stories coming out of that. Um, at, out of that mission and uh, one of the latest ones from this week is that uh, they've discovered that there are two mountains with depressions at the top similar to you might say a crater or mm. a volcano okay. mm. uh, so these are uh, right mons and picard mons and so they're so right mons is between three and five kilometers high and uh, Picard Mons is up to 6K high, and they're both quite wide, 160 kilometres wide. Mm. Look like volcanoes, but are they volcanoes? Of course, being on Pluto, where it's, you know, pretty pretty damn cold, they wouldn't be volcanoes like we have here on Earth, so they're not spewing out molten lava or anything like that. They would be ice volcanoes or cryovolcanoes, uh, and if they are active they would have uh, ice flowing um, and the question is are they actually volcanoes they could yeah. they could be the result of something else they could be the result of uh, tectonic movement in the um, mm. in the surface of Pluto um, but anyway that's uh, sort of an interesting an interesting thing that you know they still have to have to look, look further into and you know if they are uh, volcanoes that have movement of of ice as well then it you know begs the question of you know what is generating that movement is there heat inside of pluto that might be the result of you know radioactive decay from you know radioactive elements that have remained there since the birth of the planet or um you know Tectonic stresses from gravity of moons and well, see, this is the thing. Like, so Jupiter's moon Ganymede also Mm. has some volcano-looking, looking looking 
things. Yep. Um, and I think, is it Neptune's moon mm. also has some ice volcanoes? But in those cases, you know, the moons have the gravitational pull of Whopping their of their massive planet. Mm. Pluto doesn't have that, so no. um, so something else would be creating yeah. any movement that has that's going on in the in the volcanoes that are on Pluto. So I, yeah. I think it's fascinating. You know, these things are made of ice. And, of course, the the key there is that the temperatures and so forth we're talking about on Pluto, ice is not like what you'd put in your drink here on Earth. It's extremely strong. And so you can build a six-and-a-half, you said six-and-a-half-kilometre high mountain yep. out of ice, which I, I, I just quickly, it's amazing what you can find on Google. You know, <laughs> Everest is sitting at about 8.8 kilometres. So if you think of just the, the sheer weight or sheer amount of mass in an object that is six-and-a-half kilometres high, you've got to be able to hold that sucker up, which means the mm. ice at the bottom has to be extremely strong and dense to um, to be able to do that. So it's it's fascinating to find that sort of structure. Yeah, well, um, certainly, uh, I mean, it's, you know, like a lot of scientific missions, it's like more questions than answers often. Mm. And so this, you know, opens up a whole new bunch of questions that people will uh, obviously be, you know, taking their time to try and work out what where, where the truth lies in all of it. Yeah. Now, some people uh, may remember, it's probably a couple of years ago now, I did a story on some work that was being done in small rodents, uh, mice or rats, I forget, I'm afraid, which it was, um, with regards to trying to breach the blood-brain barrier. So this this part of our body where chemicals don't seem to traverse. So if you give someone drugs and you want them to get across that barrier to treat a condition in the brain, a very, very small percentage of those drugs will get across. Now, if you're talking about something like chemotherapy, which is actually quite damaging to the body in general, you can't just keep dosing a person up to get enough across that barrier you'll actually kill them before it becomes effective and so this has been one of the things that's prevented um, treatment of certain tumors and so forth mm-hmm. in the brain uh, because compared to other parts of the body where chemotherapy works quite effectively and uh, i think it was a couple of years ago now i did a story on um, some work in canada that was being done in in mice um, where they were using an ultrasound to change uh, this this barrier and potentially let some some of these chemicals through. Now, the interesting thing is, um, uh, I actually uh, have a, a friend of mine who recently uh, lost her husband to a brain tumor after a number of years of fighting this, um, because there is very little or no treatment. Mm. And um, she she sent this link to a few of us on Facebook to the work that has just come out of Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. A guy named Todd Mainprice, who's been doing this work, has for the first time successfully treated a lady named Bonnie Hall's brain tumour. She's had this tumour for a while um, in a non-invasive way. So this is non-surgical. This is using traditional chemotherapy, but using this focused ultrasound technique. So essentially what what is done is the, the patient is given the chemotherapy as as per normal. Um, they're then injected with some micro bubbles which are not not damaging. They're very very small, very small bubbles of air. And as those bubbles head towards the part where the tumor um, is located or near to that point on the other side of the blood-brain barrier. Um, an ultrasound is directed to that point and these micro bubbles oscillate around and they open up the structures enough to let these chemicals through and then the the amount of chemotherapy that you want to deliver to the tumour is done in the same way as you would for any other part of the body. And um, this has been a successful treatment for this particular lady and it, in many regards will revolutionise if it's, you know, they're doing it in about another 10 patients. Um, but if it's successful, it will really change the way these dreadful um, glioblastomas are treated. 
Yeah, it's pretty, uh, I mean, the, the blood brain barrier is pretty, um, pretty interesting because it's, it's almost like, you know, the normal vessels of your body have these cells, epithelial cells, which, you know, is create this tube that, that the blood sort of goes along. Mm. And in normal vessels in your body, uh, you know, molecules and, uh, and other things and pathogens can pass through the little gaps in between those cells. But in the brain, you've got these tight junctions, which are like, you know, protein linkages from one cell to the next that mm. hold the cells so tightly together that, you know, effectively nothing can get through. Uh, so yeah, the, the bubbles, that get, um, you know, I guess Cavitated. activated yeah, by, yeah. by the ultrasound. They, I mean, they're, they're pretty much just, um, ripping apart those yeah. tight junctions. They're tearing the junctions, literally. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is not, um, I was wondering about how much it does, and it doesn't have to do with a lot. So it's not doing it enough to cause any physical damage to the person. There's just yeah, these yeah. subtle strains. That's right. Um, you're not getting great big bleeds in the brain no, or anything no, because the no, vessels no, it's are just destroyed. Or to, I mean, because the chemicals that are being pushed through here are fairly small in themselves. So you don't need large gaps, but this is, um, it's it's an incredibly interesting um, procedure, and and the thing I, I like about it is the simplicity of the idea. You know, using ultrasound in a very simple way, mm. in a non-invasive way, um, that may allow many people to be treated for these things. And, and as I said, you know, this friend of mine, you know, lost her husband recently. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy of you know, very early forties, early, early in life, and that's often you know these things occur fairly early in people's lives, yeah. and. Um, this sort of treatment's one of those areas that potentially could change that scenario yeah. for a lot of people. So, but I think I read. So I think I read that the the lady who was treated, she um she was slated to go under the knife anyway. Mm. So what they'll mm. be able to do is, you know, they they've given her this uh, chemotherapy drug uh, with the, you know using the ultrasound, but now they'll be able to go in, take out that portion of yep. her brain, and you know measure how much does actually has actually mm. gone through mm. from. Yeah, across the blood-brain yeah. barrier. So a good, a good way to think of these tumours that are so problematic is, you know, you have this sort of solid mass, but then it's almost like a spider web that spreads out throughout the brain, and surgeons just cannot get no. that out yeah. without causing irreparable damage to to who a person is. Mm. And so that's where traditionally, you know, chemical therapies that go after those fast, fastly or you know very rapidly. Um, progressing cells mm. that the, the tumor themselves um, just haven't been able to work. So this this gives you both, you know, both options: the surgery for the debulking of of those um, tumors, but also the ability to go after the bits that you can't surgically remove. So yeah, yeah. we'll watch this because I think it is um, it's one of those areas which is super exciting and um, it has that. I love that simplicity to <laughs> to the way in which the physics and, and the medicine work together to to solve this problem. So, yeah. Um, yeah, big congrats to the group from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto because this is a spectacular piece of work that we'll keep an eye on. And it's I should say it's not just um, going to be something for for tumours and cancers, but but other areas like Alzheimer's and. Um, depression and parkinson's all of these mm. diseases where you cannot get the medication to where you need it to go um this is potentially a way to do that which might really change, change yeah and presumably then you know if uh if drugs you know can reach where they need to go more easily then you know dosages might reduce. you know be reduced and, yeah. and all of those sort of things because some some medications have horrific side effects mm. and mm. yeah no, absolutely. Well, well, anything we take sooner or later has to be cleared out by our kidneys. Yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> you know, the poor kidneys are doing the best they can. They don't want to do too much. So if you can minimize it, you're right. That's a real big deal. Yeah. What else you got, Dr. Downey? 
Dr Shane, if you think about what animals are becoming extinct at the moment... How long have I got? <laughs> yeah, I know, it's, it's a bit of a sad situation. <laughs> but, but, you know, can you think of anything, you know, especially in the iconic species that you think about, you know, what, what feature would you say unites them? Unites them? Yeah. Um, in terms of what would cause them to go extinct or... The change in climate, the well, change may, in may, maybe I should maybe I should just <laughs> maybe I'm am being, I losing this game? <laughs> maybe I'm being a bit too cryptic. Okay, one of the things that uh, a lot of creatures that are going extinct now have in common is that they are large. Right, there yes. are lots of you know l- large mammals that are you know under serious threat um, for extinction. And they're, they're the ones we notice, though, aren't they? They are the ones that we notice, and there are definitely, definitely lots of other, um, well, in Australia, there are lots of small mammals which Mm. are going extinct, which is, um, which is quite disturbing. Uh, but anyway, if we focus on the large animals, (laughs) (laughs) and and if we, and if we say that, you know, we are potentially going through a mass extinction event at the moment, Mm -hmm. um, that has been proposed by a number of people, uh, people have, have, I guess, wondered whether this idea that large animals are particularly vulnerable to mass extinction events, um, people are wondering whether that's, you know, not just this extinction event, but all extinction events. Um, And it's called the Lilliput effect, um, (laughs) from Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, is it little people? Exactly, little people. Um, And... But anyway, uh, there's a paleobiologist at the University of Pennsylvania called Lauren Salen, and she decided that she would put this Lilliput effect to the test. So is it really the case that, you know, after a mass extinction, you end up with small species? Or is it just, you know, an artefact of the fossil record that, Mm. you know, we don't really know whether the fossil record truly represents everything that was there? Maybe small species are preferentially... Didn't last, or yeah, well, in the fossil well, record as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, she, she's been working on um, fish from the age of the fishes, which was around three hundred and fifty-nine million years ago, and uh, her her colleagues um, very kindly call her the sardine queen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, she decided to have a look because there was a mass extinction event at the end of the Devonian period, three hundred and fifty-nine million years ago, and she, and it was caused by like. A, 100,000 year long cold spell and it wiped out a lot of the species on earth um, but what she decided to do was take the fossil record spanning a, a 96 million year interval so you know others um, other studies have sort of done you know snapshot before snapshot after but she looked at an entire period and what she discovered was that in the thir- in the 60 million years before the extinction event uh Lots of species were getting larger and larger and larger. Mm-hmm. So fish the size of buses were, <laughs> yeah. yep. were, were developing, were evolving. But in the 36 million years following the die off, uh, sp- fish species were on average less than 40 centimeters long. They right. were much, much, much smaller. And, uh, and it really took a long, long, long time before they gradually started getting bigger again. Getting bigger again. Mm. Um, so it looks like the Lilliput effect is true. And to be honest, when I read this, I was sort of thinking, well, no, no kidding <laughs> yeah. in a way, because, you know, you would expect that, um, you know, large species have very long life cycles. They can't adapt to changing environmental conditions very rapidly. Fewer offspring. Whereas, 
Exactly. Mm. Fewer yep. offspring, um, probably not as great uh, population sizes. Mm. So they don't have that um, vari- variation in their gene pool. Um, it's it's just a lot harder for them to go. So, of course, any any situation where you've got, you know, these um, environmental pressures, be it climate mm. change or, yeah. or whatever, you know, you are going to favour the smaller species yeah. because they've got the ability to adapt much more quickly yeah. and they've got the you know they've usually got the life cycle on their side they you know might be breeding earlier they might be uh, you know and they might have larger populations mm. so yeah it's it's kind of um, but anyway it's well it's interesting that, that that's coming out of the data because I, I would have always thought that the the single most important item is the species ability to move so if a species is able to move from location to location, which is not true for all, for all species, then Certainly their chance not. of adapting to a changing climate goes up. Then there's a secondary issue, how fast they breathe, how big they are, how much they have to consume. Because these, as you said, the large fish, I mean, the sheer amount of food they have to consume when they're at the top of the food chain like that is extraordinary. Mm. You know, tons of, of food each day. And so, you know, if you reduce the food stocks even just a little bit, that becomes very hard to deal with. But, but if they can't move around... Um, that's when they, you know, they get coarse. And even, you know, we've seen that with some of the, the species at the top of Mount Buller and so forth here, where yeah, they, they literally yeah. can't move to another site. Um, you know, they're, they're in big trouble, um, regardless of size in a sense. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so it's interesting to see that the, the size thing is coming out as well as that, as a big feature. Yeah, it certainly mm. is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we better take a break. We're going to call our first guest in a few moments, folks, so I'm going to play you some music, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple Arts, a science program. 3 Triple Back, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R, and uh, we will hopefully be speaking to our first guest on the phone. Is Associate Professor Christine Erber. Christine, are you there? Yes, I am. Now it's great to talk to you. You're the director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University, and one of the things you're, you've been working on is this whole area of making, uh, I guess, our oceans more quiet. So making these noise-free zones. Um, potentially for some of our marine species. Can we, can we just talk a little bit about what the problem is there? Why, why is noise in the ocean such a, an issue at the moment? Okay. Well, basically, um, when you think about it, um, light travels really poorly underwater, but mm-hmm. sound travels very well. For example, if you just put your hand into the water, if it's murky water, you might barely see the tips of your fingers. If you have really clear water, you know, you might be able to see one or two meters, sort of, if you're sitting in a kayak, you might be able to see the sea floor, but you certainly can't see very far. However, sound travels extremely well underwater, and therefore marine creatures have evolved a very sophisticated sense of hearing. So they use sound to sense their environment, to communicate over very, very long ranges, um, sometimes tens to hundreds of kilometers. Um, and basically any noise that we put into the ocean can interfere with communication amongst animals or with how they sense their environment. Um, in extreme cases, noise can actually deafen animals, similar to, to what we might experience in air. So, for example, if you go to a concert, you might experience a temporary threshold shift. So for a couple of hours after a live concert, your hearing threshold might be raised. And we find the same effects in marine animals after 
noise exposure. Mm. So and given that these animals largely rely on acoustics, we are concerned about what anthropogenic or man-made noise can do to them. So I, I have this uh, understanding, I guess, of, of some of those noises, because I, I can imagine quite a range of noises in the sea that we have to take care of. So, for example, the, in some cases, like sharks would, would sense the noise or the vibrations caused by other fish movements, but then you go to the other end of the scale where you have things like whales communicating through song and so forth and everything in between. Uh, presumably this kind of knocks out any sort of noise we would put in the ocean at a range of frequencies, is that right? That's right. So, I mean, different animals are sensitive to different frequencies. As you say, sort of fish and sharks are sensitive to rather low frequencies and vibration, where some animals like dolphins are sensitive to very high frequencies because these guys use what we call biosonar. They have an active echolocation system, very much like a submarine, where they send out high-frequency signals and they travel and reflect of potential prey or subsea structures, and then from the reflections they can navigate and, and find prey. So depending on what noise we make, um, different frequencies will affect different animals. I remember a few years ago there was this idea that uh, some of the beachings that of whales and dolphins and those sort of things could be the result of uh, underwater uh, noise pollution. Is, is that, has that borne out in the evidence? Um, yeah, so there have been just fewer than a handful of studies where strandings have been uh, linked to underwater sound. For example, there in the, the Bahamas, there was a case where the U.S. Navy undertook some um, sonar tests and then animals um, stranded um, just shortly thereafter. There have not really been many opportunities to make that link between underwater noise and um, fatal results. But that's because often the animals, when they arrive stranded on a beach, um, they are already in quite poor conditions. So it's hard to pin down what was the cause of death. So many of them might have disease. Um, some might have um, obvious signs of, of hearing damage. But it's tricky to make that causal link what really was the ultimate that um, led to the stranding. Mm. Now, Christine, you've been working with uh, your colleagues in Europe and North America um, with regards to this whole issue of noise uh, in a recent study. What, what have been the outcomes of that study in terms of recommendations and so forth for any sort of marine spatial environment that we tend to plan into the future? Right, so we have had a few studies where we look particularly at different types of noise, for example, sounds from seismic surveys and how they might interfere with animal communication or animal behavior to, to ship noise, to pile driving noise. Um, in general, our recommendations are always, you know, just trying to keep the issue of underwater noise in people's minds. And in Europe, noise is considered a water quality factor these days. So it's mm. not just about chemical pollution, but um, the underwater acoustic environment is also so um, part of the equation of the quality of the water. So, and what we find is when, you know, governments look at marine spatial planning, there might be areas they think are stressed be it due to overfishing or maybe coral damage or global warming um, or chemical pollution. But what is often forgotten is the underwater noise. And yeah. the tricky thing here is that noise travels just so well. 
if you want to protect an area um, from underwater noise, you have to really uh, set quite large boundaries because noise underwater really travels with very little loss over many, many tens, if not hundreds of kilometres. Hmm. It's it's interesting, uh, you know, around the world as we get all these marine reserves coming online, and you know, there's there's a number of them now, although it's such a, still such a small portion of our oceans is covered. Do any of them take into account this issue? I mean, I can imagine with many of them, they're still traversed by ships, whether they be um, commercial shipping or or, or, um, or more personal sort of shipping, all of which put substantial amounts of noise into those environments. Is it something that's taken into account in these marine parks? Um, we're starting to see that. So, yes, in, in the United States, we are, we are starting to see that pop up in, in strategic marine spatial planning, but the implementation always you know, is a few years behind. Mm. And in terms of, if, if you're to put this sort of thing into place, how do you um, determine the levels of noise which are acceptable? I mean, I know, you know, here in Australia, you know, Sydney Airport has a curfew because certain noise levels are, you know, it's sort of easy to detect the, the level of decibels um, on land that are acceptable to, to people. What's the corresponding sort of measure for marine environments? How do you go about enforcing a, a level of noise pollution and, and preventing it from going above that level? Right, still quite tricky. However, I think we are sort of all the various stakeholders in the marine environment are actually starting to work together. So, for example, here on the northwest shelf, just off Western Australia, um, during the season when humpback whales in the northern parts of um, Western Australia come for for breeding and mating, there actually sort of is an industry agreement not to do any seismic surveys at that time, and that is in order to prevent that these animals are disrupted by that noise. So, it really depends on where you are, how well the sound propagates and what are the sources. And I think if we work together and just maybe consider some sort of time area closures, as you were just saying with um, you know, airport, um, airport noise, I think we can make huge progress. Mm. It, it, it's another area where, again, this whole, and we just heard on the, the show prior to uh, prior to the one prior to ours, which is a, a marine show here on Triple R, how we, we tend to um, have the oceans almost out of sight, out of mind. And it's one of those areas where we need to focus quite a bit of attention that perhaps hasn't been uh, in this area, whereas on, on land, when we talk about um, reserves and so forth, a lot of these things are taken into account. Is that, is that a fair statement? I would say so. And again, so one of the interesting things here is, so of course, um, from our experience, you know, we're exposed to airborne sound all the time. So it's something that we worry about, but we can't actually hear any noise underwater unless we go go diving ourselves. And even mm. then, because of our middle ears and, and outer ears being air filled, there's actually rather poor sound transmission when humans go underwater. And the curious thing, though, is that airborne noise travels very well into the water. So for animals that are now adapted to hearing underwater they can hear quite well what happens in air whereas the other way around a noise source underwater like a ship's propeller or something is only heard very poorly in air and that's just because the acoustic media are so different so you've got the water being much more dense than the air and therefore sound that is generated underwater reflects on the water surface interface where sound generated in air transmits into the water so from our experience all we hear always is just in, in air noise 
I suppose therefore we have historically not really worried about underwater noise. Um, but the evidence is there and I think people are getting more concerned and I'm quite positive that we'll be able to do something about it. Well, Christine, I think that's a good good place to leave things. Um, great work. Continue it, please, because uh, this is a, a yet another area where our oceans have probably been neglected in our planning and so forth for far too long in the area of uh, noise pollution is obviously a big one especially as you say so many of our species underwater are very specifically and, and very sharply adapted to the use of of um, noise because it transmits so well through that medium so thank you very much for speaking to us today on triple r yes thank you Shannon. thank you Diane. That was Associate Professor Christine Erbe, who is the Director of the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University. Interesting stuff. I think uh, you don't really... Yeah. I love that that statement you made about the sound from out of the water going in, but the other way doesn't really... We don't hear the other way, and so uh, that's a one-way noise pollution problem by the sounds of things. We're going to take a break. We're not going to give you some noise pollution. We're going to give you some lovely tunes. Uh, We'll play some music, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking to one of the Prime Minister's Prize winners for excellence in science teaching in primary schools, which we're very excited about. Um, Rebecca Johnson will be on in a moment talking about the great program she's had going for some 15 years in promoting science in schools. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Three Triple R, and we do have another guest on the phone now. We have Rebecca Johnson, who is a primary school teacher from Windaroo State School. Rebecca, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Now, first of all, congratulations on winning the Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching in Primary Schools. This must be an incredible accolade after so many years of teaching. You must be very excited. Yep, it's absolutely fantastic. What what happened at the school? Did they throw you a bit of a party? Were the kids excited? Uh, Yeah, they did. They were all very excited. Of course, I was away when they all found out because they found out the day that it was announced. But uh, when I got back, they kids brought little presents and things so it was was really exciting oh look that's fantastic now what um it's interesting um we were just reading the information sent through um on yourself and one and dr diani and i were just um talking about the uh, one of the statements you made about um how we never ever question the fact that there are particular needs for um teachers in special subjects like music or or um physical education or languages in in primary schools and these teachers are specifically there just to teach those subjects but when it comes to science this is not done i mean this seems like a really crazy scenario isn't it yeah, well, I I really think it is. I think it's something that, you know, we've just sort of accepted for a long time. And, you know, judging by our school's results, I just think it's something that needs to be, you know, at least looked at more closely or, you know, tested in some way and addressed. Hmm. Now, tell us a bit about what you've been doing at your school, because essentially you're there as a full-time science teacher. Yep. Yep, so, and it's not just me, there's actually four of us now Mm -hmm. um, at our school and heaps of other schools around the area that are doing it as well. But 15 years ago, um, I came back to teaching from being at home with my children and, um, yeah, there was a position going for for filling in non-contact time, which I don't know if people understand, is that in Queensland, certainly all primary school teachers have two hours a week where they're off class, but they still do, like, they pull kids out for individual testing and all that sort yep. of stuff 
and so I was brought in to take those classes for one hour a week to you know to do catch-up lessons or whatever and uh, yeah I sort of you know got a bit bored pretty quickly and thought you know there must be something that I can do in this hour that's a bit more professionally rewarding for me and so I suggested to a few of them that I teach their science and uh, yeah it just within about three weeks everyone said well can you teach mine as well because science is one of those subjects science is one of those subjects that is just so much work to prepare it and do it properly and resourcing is always an issue you know like mm. every school that I've ever had anything to do with it's like well who had the magnifying glasses last and I can't find this and you know just it, it's a big job to sort of be able to get all the resources when you need them is one problem a second problem is the fact that there are definitely you know there are a lot of primary school teachers who you know that teach science subjects are not a prerequisite for teaching even now yep. and so it's feasible that there are teachers who have not done you know any sort of formal science for, for many years before they're in the classroom and and some of them you know don't enjoy it and don't feel confident in it so that's another issue and then the third you know issue is the teachers are so busy like they are so busy they work such incredibly long hours and have so much preparation and marking and data collection to do that to go to the trouble that we go to for one one hour lesson you know to collect the resources to set up the experiment to buy the staff you know to do all that stuff for them is not, is not really you know like it's a big load to do it properly whereas I teach the same lesson four times mm. so for me it's well and truly worth the effort to set it up and then I know I'll be using it again next year and uh, yeah and we have this incredible um science building that was built with that Kevin Rudd money and so uh, yeah so it's a big double teaching space and just we have all these wonderful drawers where you can just find whatever you need and it it just makes it so much more doable. Is that a, you mentioned that uh, teachers or primary school teachers don't have science as a prerequisite in their course, does that then present a no, challenge? No, no. Not in their course. Like when they do their degrees, they would do science subjects. But what I'm saying is a lot of them haven't studied science at high school. And so the only science that they have is really what they do at university and, mm. you know, and there's so much stuff that they have to learn about teaching at university, you know, how much time can be spent on basic science. So, but I guess, um, yeah, I, so I guess what I was wondering then, if, you know, if some teachers aren't feeling like science is necessarily their forte, is that going to be, um, you know, do you think it will be difficult finding, you know, for each primary school, uh, someone who really wants to jump in this role? Not at all. Not at all. And I think the most important thing is it has to be somebody. It can't be seen as a, oh, well, we'll give it to that person because they're tired and they need a bit of a break. Like yeah. mm. <laughs> it I, is a full-on job yeah. and it requires enormous energy. But I would be astounded if there's not at least one person. There will be people fighting for it. You know, at our... In our in our district, it's you know people see what we're doing and say, oh, I would just love your job. So, you know, like there, mm. there are people, there are so many people who are interested in it, but there are people who hate it. You know, mm. like I had a I had a, a very a fantastic teacher say to me the other day, marble is a metal, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> you know, and, and that two other people might not might see, but you know that it's just if it's not your interest, if it's yeah. not something, it'd be like me trying to teach music. I 
I could not, I would not know where to start teaching music or physics for that matter. And I think, Rebecca, that it brings it back to that point that you, you we were making at the start is that just as it's it is I, I know actually working with my own primary school where my son is we were trying to find a mandarin teacher and to be frank we couldn't get one so we ended up uh, having a spanish teacher which has been fantastic but you do have to source them they are you know you have to find these individuals and bring them into the schools and we've done that for for languages and other areas for for many years and thought of it as normal and we now have to do the same thing for science yeah, and the thing is, I, I don't think you'll have to hunt too hard because mm. there's lots of people, you know, waiting in the wings who who are and would jump at this opportunity because it makes such a difference. It takes a huge amount of work off the classroom teachers who can then focus on other key learning areas. And, uh, you know, it's it's such a rewarding... Everybody wants to come to science, you know, like that. We... <laughs> As I said in my speech when I won it, you know, I had a, a boy ask me if I was open on a Saturday, you know, like they just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Saturday's reserved for a religious instruction. Yeah. Um, we, uh, now, uh, just before we let you go, I wanted you to tell us, that I understand there is a scenario where you actually... Uh, you know, you do a lot of real life stuff and you, you get the students, they're actually growing some things and so forth and selling their harvest back to the staff. <laughs> I love that innovation. It is. It's wonderful. And, you know, we have been doing this for a long time and now lots of schools are doing it with the Stephanie Alexander mm. Kitchen Gardens and things like that. But yeah, we have, um, we have a green team which is open to anybody in the school. And so, yeah, every morning tea and lunchtime and before school and that we all, you know, have these little jobs that we do and you know collecting our composting and worm tea and all that sort of stuff and we've got oh i think it's about 12 quite big uh vegetable beds now in amongst all of our they're all sort of planted the garden beds and that are mixed in amongst our native trees and that sort of stuff and i don't know whether that is helping reduce the pests but for some reason we managed to do it completely organically which is really good mm -hmm. science too. but uh yeah so we've got our um our vegetable gardens and the kids grow the veggies and then they harvest them and then we have a trolley that our lovely groundsman Marche made for us out of totally recycled junk so you know old bike wheels and things like that so he made us this wonderful trolley and the kids um wheel it around with our produce each week and first we look online to see what coles are selling stuff for and we undercut <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then they sell them, and then uh, yeah, then we we count how much money we've made, and then decide what we're going to, you know, which seedlings we're going to buy, and what's selling and what's not, and you know, so run it like a little business, and um, and the kids love that. Look, it's fantastic. Um, we're going to have to leave it there, but Rebecca, congratulations again on getting the Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching in Primary Schools. Sounds to me like it is well, well deserved. Um, you know, we're, we're a science program here uh, in Melbourne on Triple R, and we absolutely applaud this pipeline that you're creating of, of new scientists coming through, or at least people who are engaged with science, even if they don't end up doing it as a career. So well done. Keep up the good work, and hopefully it will continue to spread to other schools. Well, hopefully so, because I think it's it's a no-brainer. Absolutely, <laughs> Rebecca Johnson. Okay. Thanks so much, and um, have have a great time. I hope uh, I hope you you get a massive produce this year. But it's, it's nice and warm early, so the kids should be making plenty of money yeah, soon. Yeah, no, we are. We're actually. <laughs> 
harvesting our heads off at the moment. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you very much. Good talking Thank to you. Thank you. Bye. That was Rebecca Johnson, who is a teacher at the Windaroo State School um, and winner of the Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching in Primary Schools, obviously up in Queensland. But um, absolutely fabulous work there by her in getting um, getting this issue of needing specialist science teachers in state schools, just as we have them for languages and sports and music and everything else. Um, she won't get any more support than she'll get from us, I, I think, think uh, Yeah, I think as she said, it's a no-brainer. It really is. Once you... Yeah. Once it's put to you, it's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course we should have separate science teachers. Yeah, that's no, great stuff. All right, we're going to uh, take a break for some uh, music and we'll be back in just a moment and we'll be speaking um, to another guest from uh, the University of Tasmania. We're, we're just ringing people randomly today. It feels, <laughs> kind of feels that way. Uh, but no, it's, all, it's all prearranged, folks, but um, we're, we're talking to, to some amazing people. We'll be back in just a moment. Three. Triple. listening to 3 Triple R. If you're wondering what tracks we played today, they were, the one you just heard was Youth Smith with Wither. Before that was Dr. Taos with Love Strikes. And the first one was Lucy Peach with Be So Good. Now, we are joined on the line now by our third and final guest for today, Dr. Marianne Lee, who is a Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Head of Ecology and Biodiversity Centre in the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. Marianne, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. Now, thanks for chatting to us today. I guess we came to um, this interview because uh, last week we were talking to Justine Shaw, one of your colleagues, and she mentioned the Homeward Bound program that you're intimately involved with, and we thought this would be a, a good thing to have a chat about. Now, my understanding uh, loosely of this program is that it's um, essentially a big expedition where a whole of the girls going to get in a boat together and go to Antarctica, but I'm sure there's more a nuanced version of that. Well, that's certainly the fun component of it, and all the participants are very much looking forward to the trip to Antarctica. Yeah. Um, we have 17 participants from all over the world, uh, from a variety of countries, including Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, UK, France, Germany, USA, Namibia. And uh, they all applied in two rounds to come on board um, the expedition. And over the course of the next year, because the expedition is departing in early December 2016, um, they'll have the opportunity to work together on projects uh, that they're int intimately interested in, um, in science and outreach. Yeah. Now, now, uh, is it um, climate and stuff that an environment that brings you all together? Are you all from those fields, or is it more diverse? We are all scientists. Uh, there's quite a significant um, proportion of polar scientists, but there are ecologists and physicists and marine scientists, oceanographers, a whole range of scientists from all over the world who are coming together for this voyage. But if we step back a bit and think about, um, I guess, the background for the voyage, uh, in Australia at least, around 50% of PhD students are female, mm -hmm. but only around 17% of women hold those high leadership um, positions in academia. Okay. So one of the aims is to help, um, I guess, raise uh, leadership um, potential in scientists, female scientists globally. But it is around this issue of, um, 
what's happening to the planet in terms of its ecology and the stresses that are going on. And the Antarctic is a sentinel for a lot of the change that we see globally. Mm. So, so tell me a little bit about the leadership aspect, because obviously that's a big part of what this exhibition is about. Um, what happens in that regard? Is there a specific program that you all go through, or is it just the fact that you're stuck on a boat together for several weeks that kind of brings you together? No, there's a very high-level leadership program planned for the voyage. So um, Datna Grant is a leadership uh, organisation based in Melbourne, um, and Fabian Datna, who is the founder of that um, organisation, uh, had this idea along with Jeff Melvin Thomas um, from the ACRC and University of Tasmania. And the idea really is to bring together... Women, this is the first voyage and hopefully there'll be many others, um, to train them in leadership and strategic um, thinking and also to expose them to the high-level and up-to-date research on what's happening to the planet in terms of ecology and climate change. And so the leadership um, aspect of the voyage it's something that um, Fabian Dutner and her company are already very well versed in, and so they will get very high-level leadership training for six days while we're in Antarctica. Okay. And what's what's the total length of the trip, and is is it just just your team on, on the boat? Uh, like, are you with another group, or is it, uh, are you chartering the boat yourselves? How does that work? Yes. So Homeward Bound have chartered the vessel, which is called the Ushuaia, for the whole voyage, which is a 20-day voyage uh, from the Antarctic Peninsula. We have um, a well-renowned mountaineer and expedition leader, uh, Greg Mortimer, who will be our expedition leader for this trip. And the voyage will be split into um, leadership, strategic and science components, so roughly around six days each. And um, Antarctica is a wonderful backdrop for everybody to well to learn about the changes that we see in terms of science and the planet and um, to plan for a more sustainable future. Mm. But it also offers us the opportunity to all be immersed in that learning together and mm. to, you know, there's no distractions when you're in Antarctica apart from the scenery and the incredible wildlife. Yeah. Well, Marianne, look, it's a, it's a very interesting program and I hope it goes well for you guys. We're unfortunately out of time here, so we're going to have to leave it at that. But um, please do let us know how you go and, and maybe we can try and hook up with you next year when you're actually down there, assuming you have access to internet or phone capabilities. Absolutely. We'd be very interested in keeping you all up to date during the course of the voyage. That'd be great. Thanks so much for speaking to us today. Thanks, Jane. This is Dr. Marianne Lee, who is a Senior Research Fellow and Deputy Head of Ecology and Biodiversity Centre in the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania. Now, we're going to quickly play um, a quick uh, station announcement, very important, and then we'll be back to say goodbye in just a moment, Diani. The Watsonia Motor Show is on Saturday, November the 21st. Vintage, classic and showstoppers. Plus live music from Wilbur Wilde, the cool rockin' daddies, Sweet Felicia and the honey tones. Rattlin' Bones Blackwood, Apala, ooh la la. Leslie Avril, Cam Lopez and Phoebe Dacos. Free entry and family fun. Saturday, November 21st, 10am till 4pm. For details, go to watsoniatraders.com.au. The Watsonia Motor Show, proud Triple R sponsors. 
Yerraville's Kindred Studios is hosting a three-hour musical event raising funds for the West Welcome Wagon, a grassroots organisation providing support for recently arrived asylum seekers settling into a new life in Melbourne's western suburbs. Featuring local West Melbourne acts, Speed Orange, Middle-Aged Weirdo, Roostar and Liam and Dan. Friday, November 20, 7.30pm at Kindred Studios, Yarraville. All proceeds go to West Welcome Wagon. For more info, go to westwelcomewagon.org.au. A Triple R community service announcement. Now you got to love Triple R, don't you, folks? Uh, we do. That's why we're here we every do. week. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Tiana and I turned up here at 10 o'clock um, just to hang out. Just to hang out. Just so you Green can room's great. unload some stuff. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, now, we're going to have to say goodbye in, the, in a moment, but uh, we do have, uh, I think we've only got six shows to go for the Gosh, year. Gosh, that's not many. I'm getting a bit um, freaked out by that. You looking forward to the break? I look forward to the break from, I guess, organising the show, but I don't look forward to the break from doing the show, if that makes sense. I mean, there's a bit of organisation that goes into the show, obviously, which takes a bit of my time. Yeah. But I love, um, you know, I'd just stay here all day, every day, if I if I was paid to do it, and I could give up my other job, I would do that. Hope my workplace isn't listening. I'm sure they won't. It's a small university. Um, but, uh, no, it's great being part of Triple R. But we are, we are approaching our 100th guest for the year, which is... That's quite an achievement. Quite cool. We're, we're pretty happy about that. And, and the funny thing is that, you know, that's really only... Not even scraping the surface of what... You know, the number of people mm. available around mm. there who, you know, are doing work and... Would. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've had a, we've had a pretty good year this year with some just amazing guests, and I, you know, I'll say this at the end of the year, but a massive thank you to all those people in communications offices and so forth who have been helping us get those those guests and sending them to us because we mm. do have a, a lot of demand for the spots, but mm-hmm. um, but we love hearing from people. So um, let us know if you know someone who's good you've been listening to three triple r um einstein and gogo i'm dr shane a big thank you to dr diani for joining me today it's and been great our three uh phone guests live as a way today she's unwell so hasn't been able to do our twitter feed we'll be back next week remember until then science is everywhere and we'll leave you now with the team from eat it this has been a podcast oh. from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly oh. independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.